Hello, this is Jada and Emlyn with another episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. On this podcast, we interview medical professionals in order to get a better idea of what it is they do and why they do it. We also listen as they tell us their story, recounting how they chose to go into medicine. On today's episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs, we're going to be talking to radiologist Dr. Toma Omafoye. Dr. Omafoye specializes in breast imaging radiology. Dr. Omofoye. Um, I'm Emlyn and this is Jada. Uh, it's great to meet you. It's great. We're really to excited meet you. to hear about your insight and your experiences. Well, I'm excited to share them. I have to commend you. Um, you guys have done just such an excellent job. You've been so thorough and professional. I've been bragging about y'all and I haven't even met y'all yet. So it's really incredible. I was bragging about you to our um, entire um radiology team on Friday. It's like, this is, this is crazy. So I'm very, very impressed. Thank you. That's, we really appreciate it. So uh, without further ado, let's begin with your high school years. Uh, what was your overall high school experience and were you interested in medicine at the time? So I actually went to high school in Nigeria. Um, I was born in Nigeria and raised, and I was raised by two physician parents. Um, which was interesting because I got to see how much of a need there was for people to have access to healthcare um, and how important it could be being that person who helped to save lives. And um, I appreciated what they did, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to do medicine myself. Okay, so this is the confession. I really wasn't 100% sold on medicine. Um, In terms of high school, I begged my parents to let me go to this boarding school. And it was sort of like a, um, almost like the Harry Potter experience, right? It's a British-based boarding school. So we had houses and each house had colors. And, you know, some parts were really fun. It's like having this giant sleepover all the time. Um, But it also gave me opportunity to get very self-sufficient, right? I had to make sure I was doing my homework. There was nobody looking around over me. I had to make sure that I was selecting the right classes. There was nobody double checking that. I had to make sure that um, I had my allowance at the start of the semester and I had to make it last, you know, or figure out a way to, you know, big, you know make, make ends meet. Um, I'd figure out how to do my own laundry, make sure that I took care of my health. So my high school experience was great because it taught me self-sufficiency. It's something you're going to have to learn at some point in your life. Um, It's great if you start to learn it when you have a bit of a fallback, when you have your parents around to help you if you kind of screw things up, Um, but it's something you're going to have to learn. And so that was a great experience for me. I will say that being, even though that experience is very different from what most American teenagers are experiencing now, I do think that there are similar threads, right? I think that when you take a high schooler who takes ownership of their education completely, because you're doing that, right? Um, and And you're saying, these are the kinds of classes I think I need to be taking, or I need to be in AP classes, or maybe I should try the SAT this year. That sort of ownership, it's the exact same skill set. You just kind of keep repeating those same skills over and over again and getting ready for college and getting ready for medical school and getting ready for residency and getting ready for attending life. Same skill set. So the, I think that the core is the same. 
It sounds like your boarding school helped to set you up for the increased accountability and responsibility that are required for your college years. Um, what was the transition like between that boarding school and when you decided to go to college? So it was interesting because I came to college in the United States. And when I left boarding school, I graduated and moved to college. I went to University of West Georgia, which is at that time was a very small school. And I had a little bit of a cultural change moving from one country to another, which some people experience. Um, but for me, I think the biggest change was I felt this weight of responsibility to choose my major. It felt like I needed to make this supreme decision about how my life would go. And I was 17 years old trying to figure out this really huge task. Uh, so that was the biggest change for me in that transition was a feeling that everything was permanent. Now, I will tell you, I was the kind of person who loved a lot of things. And so when you asked me what I wanted to do, I wanted to help people. I wanted to be a psychologist. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a lawyer. I loved a lot of things, which made it difficult for me to narrow down a major in college. And so um, what I did was I actually, I listened to my parents. I listened to them and said, you all know me, you know my strengths. What do you think I should really do? And they said, we know that you want to be able to help people. And we actually think that even though you have a lot of different strengths, medicine is a really good fit. Because one thing that the medical field does is that it allows you to create your own subspecialty niche that fits your particular personality. So, you know, being a physician is not just this monolith. There's actually the opportunity to be, you know, more creative if you're doing reconstructive surgery, for example or more sensitive if you're doing psychiatry or you know, more detail oriented if you're doing family medicine. So it, it still allows you to have your own niche in it. Um, but I had a problem. I had a big problem, which was chemistry. <laughs> um, I could tell you about that, but that's, that's a whole story. <laughs> well, we'll definitely get to your chemistry story. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, I liked how you touched on how there's a lot of different subspecialties you can go in um, when you join the medical field, because that's one of the reasons we created this podcast, just to kind of talk to people who have done completely different, um, completely different things and kind of learn more about what those subspecialties entail and what's going on. Um, so one thing I would like to ask is you talked kind of about um, how you had to transition from like your high school life and uh, boarding school into college. What were some of the biggest uh, differences and maybe similarities between the two? I will say one of the biggest similarities was that the, the study skills that you develop in high school are the same study skills you're going to need in college. Okay, so if you figure out in high school that you are an um, a visual learner, for example, and then you spend a lot of your time drawing out your charts and your pictures and doing that, it's actually great training ground because that's what you're gonna use in college. And it's gonna help you become more efficient when you have a larger volume of material to consume. I'll also say that the discipline that you learn in high school also carries over in college. And this actually wasn't academics related, it was athletics. 
So I was a runner in high school. I ran track and I was very good. Okay. I was, I was actually very good. Seriously. But the thing about track is that when you step on the field the first time, your coach immediately evaluates you and starts by telling you what you're doing wrong and what you can do better. And for some people, what they want to do is quit. Um, but for the people who truly dig into those athletic skills, you're going to build some grit. You're going to build some resilience, right? You develop that growth mindset of saying, okay, so I just got to work at it. I just got to put in the practice. I just got to put in the time. Um, and that's exactly what college is about. In terms of the difference and difficulty between high school and college, it wasn't a huge jump in difficulty in, in, in how complex the material was, but it required more time. It required more effort. It required uh, more attention to detail. It required some humility. I mean, I remember I wrote a paper and my very first paper I had my grade dropped on it because I had typed, waited till the last minute to type it up. And so there was typos in it. And my grade dropped because of that. Um, but a lot of people who had a bad grade on that first paper dropped the class because you could do that. And I thought, I'm just not gonna drop the class. I'm gonna stick with this. I want to graduate in four years. And so I think the same skill sets from high school carry over into college. What is different, I think may actually surprise you. I think, I actually think, that the workload I carried in high school was heavier than the workload I carried in college. I think that in high school, I had a lot of graduation requirements. I had, you know, the advanced honors classes. Um, I had things that I had to do just to check the box for, for the government, you know? And by the time I got to college, there were actually fewer things that I needed to do to check the box for graduation. And I could carry over credits from high school. I tested out of certain classes in college, so I didn't have as heavy a workload. So it actually felt more manageable to me for some reason in college. And I got to um, work part-time doing research. I got to you know, spend time um, uh, joining the Honors College and doing special projects as part of that. So it's actually beneficial to take some of those harder advanced placement courses in high school because it builds in some more creative time for college. I think uh, your comment about the workload between high school and college was surprising, but it does make sense when you think about it. Um, your advice for the student athlete does, I think it's really helpful and it makes a lot of sense to uh, be able to establish that growth mindset. So thinking about a growth mindset and uh, taking on these challenges, you had said that chemistry was a major issue for you, but you ended up majoring in chemistry. What's the story behind that? I did. I did. You did your homework. I majored in chemistry. So in high school, it was legendary. Okay. I hated chemistry and it hated me back. Um, the teacher had no patience for me to try to explain things. And the textbook just didn't quite make sense. I was very good at math. I was very good at the other sciences, but something about chemistry just wouldn't work. And by the time I'd had the, I'd started college and started out actually as a psychology major, and it just wasn't quite as fulfilling. Um, it wasn't what I expected. And I'm having this conversation with my parents and they say, we really think that medicine would be best for you. Um, I realized, well, it's going to come down to chemistry. 
there are these chemistry prerequisite classes I have to take and I have to do well in. And if I can't pass this roadblock, then medicine's over. So I'm kind of a jump head in person, okay? If there's something really difficult in front of me, I do it right away. I wake up and do the hard thing first thing in the morning. That's my approach to life. So I signed up for chemistry that very first semester because I wanted to sink or swim, you know? But I also am a person of my word. So if I said that I was going to give chemistry my best shot, I was going to give it my best shot. So from the, before the first class started, I sat there and I read through the entire syllabus. I marked out all the chapters in the textbook. Um, so I knew when I needed to complete each chapter by. Um, I figured out what the teacher's office hours were. And I was going to give it my best shot. And I walked into that class and my teacher, Dr. Khan, um, who had this Middle Eastern accent, but he was a huge fan of random TV shows. He would quote cheers all the time or something. I don't know. He was so funny um, that it just kept me engaged. It maybe reminded me these scientists that it makes you almost want to hide from the people that know that material. But because he was so interesting and funny and personable, he wasn't intimidating. So suddenly chemistry wasn't intimidating anymore. And he was so patient. And I just sat there and just read through the book and I would go to office hours. And the next thing I knew, I had an A+. Plus. And I thought, okay, that's a fluke. That's a fluke. Let me take another chemistry class. This is not going to work. You know, lightning doesn't strike twice. And I went to take the second chemistry class and I got an A plus and I loved it. And Dr. Khan at this point says, I think you should be a chemistry major. And I want you to start tutoring people in chemistry. And I'm like, this has got to be a joke. And, and so, um, I actually took the little training course to become a chemistry tutor, which allowed me, I think, to even solidify that knowledge more. And at that point, I realized I actually really like this stuff. And I switched my major. I became a chemistry major. I spent all of my summers doing research in chemistry. I spent all of my spare time hanging out in the chemistry department. I became um, the receptionist in the department. I, you know, faxed stuff and answered the phones like I became a chemistry nerd I was you know the periodic table you have hanging behind you that was me I had it on my shirts it was on everything and I would run into people from high school and tell them I was a chemistry major and it was hilarious because it was the biggest joke in my high school how badly I did in chemistry but I think it's also to not give up don't it's like with trying a food you know the first time I tried ketchup I really hated it. I tried ketchup and hated it. And then one day I fell in love with it, right? Um, and that was it for me for chemistry. There are certain subjects that may seem intimidating to begin with, um, but you are capable of understanding it. And sometimes it just takes a different approach and a different teacher. Yeah, well, um, that's pretty interesting because, I mean, we've heard from a lot of people that uh, some of those chemistry classes are the hardest um, class that they've taken in, like in college and, um, trying to become a doctor, like you have to take those chemistry courses, but it's one of the hardest stuff for them. And it seemed like you were able to find a way to really enjoy that one. Yeah. So um, because you enjoyed chemistry so much, I'm wondering what you thought the hardest class was. Ooh, um, you know, back in the day, and I think they've changed the requirements a little bit. Because I was a chemistry major, I had to take a lot of math as part of being a chemistry major. 
they weren't requirements for me to go to medical school, but I took them for my chemistry degree. So the hardest class was probably, I had to take, you know, calculus, calc one, calc two, calc three. And I think I had to take differential equations. And that's where I went, okay, I'm done now. I'm, I'm done. Like math is fun when it's numbers, when it's numbers and shapes, when it's numbers and letters, when it's numbers and symbols. And then when it's all symbols, it's like, this is not even math. I'm just learning a foreign language, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't fun anymore. So that was probably it for me. So just going over some of these classes that were required for you to get into medical school um, brings up the MCAT. What was your MCAT experience and uh, how did that go for you? Oh, the MCAT. Um, so I, so let me say this. So when you're in college, during the summers, they have these um, um, medical preparatory summer research programs. They're usually between six to 12 weeks. I don't know if anyone has told y'all about them yet, uh, but they give you a chance to go on a campus of a school, do a little research, shadow some people, and sometimes take some MCAT prep classes. So, you know, keep that under lock and key is something to look forward to in the future. It's sort of like an internship that's built for people trying to go to medical school. Um, so I did one of those, but really for the chemistry side. So I did chemistry research during the summer and shadowed people and all of that. For the MCAT, what I did was I took a prep course. I took a full prep course at that time with Kaplan um, and I just studied. Look, I will be the first one to tell you that, um, I, I don't wanna brag, I'm really not trying to brag. I'm trying to be um, a straight shooter here. I do well not because I'm the smartest person in the room. Most of the time, I'm not the smartest person in the room, right? Um, I was in the honors college. I was definitely not the smartest person in the room, but I can outwork anybody. I can outwork anybody. So much of life is really just about consistent effort. Again, back to sports. It's about that consistent effort. They talk about, I don't know if you've read Malcolm um, Gladwell's book, but he talks about what you need for expertise and it's 10,000 tries, right? If you're an amateur starting something, you have to practice it 10,000 times, like a golf swing or a tennis swing to get from being an amateur to being average. And then to get from average to being an expert, you need another 10,000 tries. So it's just repetition. So I would read the textbook over and over and over again. And if I got the questions wrong on my MCAT practice test, I just went over and over. And so as you can guess, I was not going to parties in college. I did not. I went to one party at the very end because my brother was DJing. Um, I did not do that because I felt like if I could get into medical school, that was the biggest bottleneck in the process. And I would have more time to relax in medical school. Um, but I worked very, very hard. And I think that um, number one, your understanding is improved when you work hard, but I also think that people respect that. And so I had teachers who would see that from the very first class, I never missed the class. I never showed up late. I never gave excuses. So if I got to the end of the semester, which by then, right, the end of the semester is the most difficult material. If I got to the end of the semester and I showed up and I said, I'm having, I'm struggling with this, or I need help with this they were enthusiastic about helping me um, versus somebody who hasn't put in any effort and suddenly shows up at the end and wants 
you know, wants to suddenly be excluded from a failing grade, right? It's a whole different conversation. So, you know, the way that my mother says it is that the world rises up to meet you. You know, when you work hard, it's like the sun shines on you. They say success is when luck meets opportunity. It's like when you're working hard, you create the opportunity and suddenly people say you're lucky, but you worked hard. Yeah, well, it's clear that um, you were a very hard worker all throughout college. But I mean, working that hard all the time, how did you focus on time management? And I'm sure there were times where it was very stressful. So how did you manage that stress? Um, I would say work smart, not hard, first of all. So figure out what classes you can get credit for. Some of your, you know, English 101, Math 101, Bio 101, Chem 101, you probably have enough credit right now to really either um, replace those grades or test out of those classes, right? So if you have a total of, let me see, four times two is eight times four. So if you have a total of 32 classes you need to take to graduate with your major, but you've come in year one and you've already tested out of six. Now you can spread out what's left of the 32, right? So you can, I sat down at the end of my first semester and planned out every class I was going to take for every semester for the rest so that I could spread it out. So I wasn't taking all of the really difficult stuff at the same time. You could really take um, uh, the opportunity to build what you wanted. The second thing is medicine wants your whole self. And so whatever the parts of you that feed you, that keep you alive, that make you feel passion, you can incorporate that in college. So I continued to take psychology classes even after I wasn't a psychology major anymore. And I got a minor in British literature because I love to read and I love British literature. And so for me, those classes were, that was a break, you know, it was, it was a fun time. Um, and the teachers appreciate it too, because you bring a different perspective. Important to do those things, not just because I love when you go to the doctor and you meet a doctor who can talk about more than science. I always think that there are certain physicians that you connect with um, on everything. There are times where I see patients and we'll connect about fashion. Sometimes we'll connect because we've traveled to the same city in Italy or we'll connect. So those things that feed your passion, you can incorporate them into your college career, but you have to plan it out. So you can't take 50 of those classes and ignore your prerequisite classes, um, but it's a great way to break up the stress. I also say, you know, keeping connected with, with home is really good. You don't have to live at home in college. You don't even have to be close to home. But I think being connected to the people who believe in you is so powerful because um, we all have moments, you know, even till today, I still have moments where you just think, I don't know if I can pull this off. I don't know if I can get the grade I need for this A. Um, And it's good to have somebody not even just believe you can get the A, but remind you that even if you don't get the A, it's not the end of the world, you know? (laughs) So having those things, I think, um, can be really life-affirming Um, And so try not to lose those relationships. Sometimes it's friends from back home. Sometimes it's your dog, sometimes, you know, um, but create room to do those things. I think that's great advice. Uh, What would you say was the most difficult in your transition between uh, college, undergrad college and going to medical school once you matriculated? Um, 
think I had to, that was the first time I really had to take out loans and I signed them in my own name. And that was a little, a little stressful um, because I thought, okay, I can't fail out. I need to make, find a job that will provide the amount of money to pay off these loans. So I thought that was the biggest transition. But this is where it becomes really important to pick the right medical school because I went to medical school at Duke and I, I loved, loved my experience there. Duke had a relatively small medical school class. There's a hundred of us, but they brought you in and they told you on the first day, we picked the hundred best students in the country and it is our job to make you succeed. And you don't know how powerful that is because there were some schools, not many thankfully, but there are some schools where they pick people and they want to weed people out. And that's a really stressful environment, right? Like that's literally the opposite. So when you're in a place where they say, we believe in you, we think you're great. What do we need to do to help you blossom? It was a huge sigh of relief. So for me, knowing that many people apply to medical school but don't get in, I felt that the fact that I got in gave me the opportunity now to actually breathe a little bit. So I actually felt less stressed in medical school than I did in college. So um, kind of aside from the environment where they wanted you to succeed and instead of trying to weed you guys out, uh, what do you think the most important thing for medical schools to incorporate in their teachings is? And um, I guess another way to phrase the question would be, what should we look for when um, we're trying to decide what medical school to go to? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, that's a fantastic question. The first is a place that believes in you. I also think it's important to find a place that thinks of you as more than just a scientist. There are a lot of brilliant scientists out there, but if you are a scientist that is unable to communicate your science either to the general public, to your community, to other researchers, that's gonna be a problem. So you want a place that feeds your whole person. Um, for example, one of the classes we had in medical school was on the human, humanism of medicine. So we spent time every afternoon just listening to people. We just listened to patients tell their stories. So it's not just about doctors teaching doctors. It was teaching us how to be good human beings, you know, good stewards of the opportunity to be doctors. And I love that. We also had the opportunity, even from the time we were in medical school, to volunteer. We started giving back. We started serving. And that was encouraged. We were working in the free clinic on Saturdays. Um, we were spending time teaching sex ed to middle schoolers, which, I mean, that was a stressful experience, let me tell you. Um, we had the opportunity to um, work with some of the um, dis disabled community. We just had a lot of opportunity to really develop our whole person. And that was something that was really emphasized when I was going through the process. I also have to say, okay, to be perfectly honest with you, I want you to think about the cost. Um, because medical schools are getting more expensive. And if you're going to have to pay an extreme amount of money to go to medical school, it puts a certain amount of stress on you, not just while you're in medical school, but even after you graduate. Um, so it might mean then that you want to take a job that makes you pay back that money, not a job that lets you be fulfilled. So if you have the opportunity to get a scholarship to a medical school, or if you have a state school that's going to be more cost effective, I strongly recommend that you consider that. It's not the end all be all, but I think it's part of what um, you can factor into your decision-making tree. 
I'll also say that look at the schools, both with medical school and with college, and figure out what the school prides itself on. So on the school website and on interview day, if you ask people, what are you most proud of? What do they say? If a place says, oh, you know, our campus is really beautiful. We've been listed as one of America's most beautiful campuses in the world. You know, it's like, okay, interesting. Um, but one thing I loved at Duke is when I asked people, what are you most proud of at Duke? And they said, the people. They always said, the people. The people here are caring, they're genuine, they're smart, they're hardworking, they're giving. And honestly, till today, they're still some of my closest friends. I still, we're in text messages now, and I graduated, you know, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago. Um, we still text each other almost every day because they really focused on bringing genuine people together and having them inspire each other. Um, so it was a, a, an environment that was really collaborative. We did not compete with each other. Um, and also along those lines, with college and with medical school, the more um, variety there are in the offerings of the school, the more different areas of expertise in that school, the less likely people are to be competitive because everybody finds their own niche. And it also allows you to blossom in different ways and find talents you didn't know. For example, being at University of West Georgia, I was on, you know, I, I got to um, participate in debate. I wasn't a good debater. I debated in high school. I wasn't good enough to be in college. But those communication skills from debate, I used them, you know, in, in communicating in college, in medical school, even today. Communication is one of the most important things you do in any profession. So being in a school that has different areas of emphasis allows you to really blossom and grow and develop and, and collaborate. Uh, while you were in medical school, what was your typical schedule like? Did you, uh, do, you do you have any time for activities outside of uh, medical school studying, and did you have enough time to pursue your individual interests? Yes, we definitely did. Um, medical school was probably, um, I probably had more time, I think, than in college, actually. Um, so in medical school, our schedule was set so that in the first year, you had classes in the classroom. Um, in the second year, you went on the wards, which wasn't common for a lot of medical school at that time. Most medical schools were two years of classes, two years of being in the wards with patients. We had one year of classes. All of the importance in your classes were condensed into one year and the fluff was thrown out. And then by the second year, you were seeing patients. And the third year was a flex year. You could do research. You could get you know, a master's in whatever you wanted to get a master's in. People got an MBA, a master's in public health. People got master's in divinity. Um, and then your fourth year, you went back to finish up your year seeing patients. And so because they had, you know, coalesced what was important in our first year of medical school, um, they actually, it meant that some of the extraneous stuff other people spent time memorizing in their medical schools we didn't have to do honestly so it was great we had more time um they also had lectures online which in retrospect was wonderful all of the lectures were also online so okay this is a little bit bad we used to sit at home and i could watch the lectures at two times speed so where i could have had lectures from 8 a.m to 2 p.m i basically could watch my lectures from 8 a.m to about 11 30. And I took all my notes and then I was good, you know? So, <laughs> so I actually had more time in medical school um, to actually just be in the community, to make lifelong friends. It was great. 
Yeah, well, with online school now, um, my brother and I definitely put our lectures on two times speed. <laughs> um, so at med school, uh, you were talking about how the cost is kind of a lot and it's four years of your life. I mean, what do you think uh, students should do to get the most out of their time there? Um, I, I think remember the primary reason that you're there is to graduate. That's the primary reason you're in medical school. I actually think that a lot of people who go into medicine are so passionate about helping people that um, it can be overwhelming. So people can start getting a little distracted because there are a lot of opportunities to start volunteering, to start giving talks. I mean, by the time I was in medical school, I was giving talks at my church on health topics and stuff like that. So it can, it can snowball really, really quickly. Um, but you have made a significant cost investment. It's important to remember that the goal is to graduate. Um, I think that while you're in medical school as well, you know, keep in mind that there are resources to help you for everything. So don't let fear of the cost or fear of a particular class or anything like that hold you back. The people there want to see you succeed. So it's okay to say, I need to have another meeting with financial aid, or I need to have another meeting with a counselor. I need to have a meeting with um, a, an educational coach to help me learn how to study more efficiently. Um, there's a lot of resources at these medical schools to help you succeed. And doing that helps you keep, keep um, track of what you need to do. And before we move into your residency and professional career, what are some things besides academics that can increase applicants' chances of getting into medical school? Um, anything that you are passionate about can increase your chances of getting into medical school. Anything you're passionate about. Um, I have colleagues who were in the Olympics as swimmers. Um, I have colleagues who are professional fencers, concert pianists, um, great orators, great writers. I think that, um, you know, we talk about different kinds of intelligences. I don't know if this is something you've heard of, but there's different kinds of intelligences. And sometimes people who are gifted enough, smart enough, intelligent enough, driven enough to be able to make it to medical school are actually able to actually be really, really gifted in other ways. So if you are, I would say, hang on to it. It's actually really interesting how many interviews you have um, that will center around your passion and not even around your CV or your resume. Because ultimately, human beings connect on what is similar about us. Not everyone you meet is going to be a doctor, but people you meet probably love music, you know? Um, so they'll appreciate you being a concert pianist. Um, for me, I think um, communication was a big thing. I loved to, to read. I love to read. I took a lot of communication classes. Um, I actually think it's one of the most important things I ever studied because you do this all day. And it's not just communication in terms of me speaking well, it's also in terms of me listening well. I'm a breast, a breast imaging radiologist. Part of my work is finding breast diseases or finding breast cancer. So I have to be able to communicate to someone, I think this may be cancer or it is not cancer. And then I have to be able to interpret what they're saying and how they're feeling and what that means and communicate back and forth. So for me, one of the most valuable things has been learning as much as I can about communication in a two-way two um, mode so that 
it can it, it can affect my work and it makes my life better. Yeah, so your entire educational experience um, has seemed like, I mean, it's very interesting. You did a lot of, um, you had a lot of fun experiences being able to volunteer and kind of help out. Um, so kind of transitioning into uh, what you do now, um, we've heard that when you go into your residency, there's kind of three major pathways you can choose, which is uh, surgery, pediatrics, and then kind of like general with adults. Um, I'm guessing you chose with the adults because you're the breast imaging radiologist, but could you tell us kind of how you made that decision and what that was like? Well, I, I think of it more broadly than that. I mean, I guess that's technically true, but I don't know if I would break it down like that. You're right, there's maybe a big break between surgical and perhaps non-surgical um, specialties, but even past that, um, even with surgical, Surgery, you also have people who are pediatric surgeons, right? So there's a lot of room. Um, in terms of what were the bigger specialties people chose, leaving medical school to go into residency, um, you had family medicine or general medicine, you had pediatrics, you had people going into general surgery, you had people going to surgical specialties directly, orthopedic surgery, you know, ENT surgery. Um, you have people going into dermatology, which is technically a surgical specialty, but we also had radiology at that point, which also involves adults and children and some minimally invasive surgeries, right? So it, it mixes everything. Um, you have people going into um, ophthalmology, um, really a wide, wide, wide variety. Um, I think it's hard to break them down into categories because they keep overlapping with each other. So it's tricky. I'll tell you why I chose radiology. As you can figure out, I am the person who loves everything. I went on every rotation and I was like, this is it. I can do this. I love this. This is it. So I started out in general medicine and I just love listening to people's stories. And then it was surgery. And I just, I love being able to go in there and just find the problem and just fix it, you know? Um, and I went into pediatrics and I loved it, but I cried. It's like, okay, I can't do this one. This one breaks my heart a little bit. <laughs> and then, and then um, I did all of these things that every time I would leave that rotation, I would go, that's what I'm gonna do. That's definitely what I'm gonna do. And then I would go to the next rotation and my friends were just shaking their heads at me like she doesn't know what she's talking about. And at the very end, okay, I had already applied in general medicine, thinking I would probably do oncology because I do like cancer biology. And I went on to do a radiology just as an elective. So I could at least read some images, some chest x-rays for my patients on call and be able to navigate some of it. And I went in there and I loved it. I loved it. I would walk into the dark every day, just like, woohoo, yes. What cool thing will we see today? Um, and meanwhile, I was on there with my best friend and she's like, I need five cups of coffee. I can't do this. And finally, she looked at me and she said, you have to do this for a living because you love this too much. And the light bulb went off. Um, I love radiology because almost every different specialty interacts with radiology at some point or another, right? You don't see the radiologist, but we see you. Um, everybody who's coming to the hospital, the vast majority of the time, they have some radiology or they have some pathology in terms of lab work. So people go and see their pediatrician and they have a cough and they do a chest x-ray. There's a radiologist behind the scenes reading that, you know? So on a daily basis, I can, a radiologist can see the babies and you can see the hundred year olds. Um, you can read x-rays, you can read CT scans, MRIs, 
um, you know, pet images. But what was really cool about it for me was I felt like I was a detective, okay? If you sit with an amazing radiologist, they'll pull up a chest X-ray. It's black and white, basically. Let's say gray and white. And he'll look at this gray and white and say, Toma, this person has blue eyes. And I'm like, why do you say that? He would say, well, their heart's a little big over here. There's a little notch right here under this rib. You know, their um, clavicle's been broken and all these three things put together is this really rare disease. And that disease always comes with blue eyes. And it was just like a detective picking up all of these really subtle clues in solving the case. And it was great because you would call the referring doctors, that pediatrician or that internist or that um, surgeon, and you would say, hey, um, you may wanna check your patient's toes. That's where the problem is. And they would be so grateful. So a lot of the problem solving was happening in radiology. And if there's anything I like to do is to solve problems. I like to be helpful. So I just it just clicked for me because it was almost like being a generalist um, but in this really cool, really cerebral way. Plus, you know, I don't have to stand on my feet all day so I can wear nice shoes. So that's also really nice. Um, but, but radiologists also have the ability to do minimal, minimally invasive surgeries. So we can use an x-ray to guide us to the exact spot that needs to be drained, removed, whatever, stented open, um, and not do a big cut, not have to keep the patient in the hospital for weeks on end. You can do just a tiny little nick, get in there, get out, and patients go home the same day, um, and you give them results without these huge, you know, um, surgical site pain and wounds and all that stuff. And so all of it together was just, it was like light bulbs going off. I just, I love it. <laughs> uh, to bring in more of a balance, what were, were some of your best and worst experiences as a radiology resident? Um, my best experiences, I would definitely say that when you have a patient who everyone's been trying to figure out what is going on with them. For example, when somebody comes in with stomach pain to the emergency room, the emergency room doctor is thinking, do they have one of about 35 things? There are so many things that could be in your abdomen that a patient calls stomach pain. And so it's great to have the experience where you can call the ER doctor after you've read that CT scan and say, oh, it is definitely their appendix or it's not their appendix. They have an obstruction and they need to go to surgery. You know, you could solve a problem for a patient that would have taken days for anyone to figure out, if ever. Um, so for me, that's one of the best experiences. Specifically now, um, you know, I'm a breast radiologist. So I remember when I was in residency in my breast imaging training, um, I remember a patient who came in with a lump and she was convinced she had breast cancer. And I got to do her examination and I told her, you actually don't have breast cancer. Um, it's just a cyst, it's completely benign. We don't even need to treat it. And she just started weeping. She was crying just tears of joy because she'd been anxious for, weeks um, worried about it. And we sat there on that bed and we FaceTimed, at that time we called, we called her daughter, I think it was Skype was what we used to use. We called her daughter, then we called her mom, then we called her aunt and everybody's just crying. And it was this big cry fest. And it was just the human, um, the human condition, you know? 
um, to think that I was such a positive part of this person's story. Um, and she would come every year and every year she would come and she would stop by and see me when she came for a checkup. Um, she would drop off pictures of her daughter. Um, I mean, it was just the cutest little thing. Her daughter started to shadow me at one point. Um, you can really give people news at one of the most anxious and sensitive times in their life that you know, in a way that's really impactful. Um, I'll say some of the hardest things sometimes is sometimes when uh, as a resident, you maybe don't see the answer the first time you make a mistake and then your attending comes behind you and has to correct that. That can be hard because I think that as human beings, we want to be perfect every single time. But I will say that um, the point of residency, okay, is to get you your 10,000 strokes. The point of residency is to get you your 10,000 tries at this. So, you know, the hard things, run to them, practice them over and over and over again. And the harder your residency is, the easier your professional life is. You know, we, the more that we embrace hard things and do hard things, um, the, the more they lose their power. Those things become the easy things for you. Yeah, so um, earlier you were kind of talking about how some of those really great radiologists were like detectives able to tell, you know, if a patient had blue eyes. Um, what would you say is one of the characteristics or like a trait that um, like differentiates between a good radiologist and just a really good one, like a great or excellent radiologist? You know what, when I find out, I will let you know. You are, no, these questions are great. I love these questions. Um, I think that the great, really great radiologists have a curiosity, an innate curiosity, not just about the case that's in front of them, but just about information in general. A radiologist is a specialist specialist, okay? There are super duper rare diseases that I have to remember because nobody else really sees them other than when they're on an image. Um, and so as a radiologist, you have to be really curious, reading all the time, or if you're not reading, listening to podcasts, attending conferences, paying attention to what are some of the cool, new, interesting, weird um, diseases out there. I think that that level of curiosity is really what separates an average radiologist from a great radiologist. Because often what happens is in some of those rare diseases, some of those tough cases, it's just a tiny little clue. And so the person who looks at it and goes, huh, is that supposed to look like that? And starts to dig and dig and do the research and pull up other images and pull out the textbooks. Um, that's how you make those diagnoses. If you're kind of, um, unconcerned and you just kind of go, I've never seen that before, but eh, who cares? And you just sort of close it out. And you just never really um, are able to add value in the same way. So I think a level of curiosity and, and an interest in lifelong learning makes a huge difference. I will also say though, that nowadays the radiologist who is personable is also extremely important. That's also going to be the new frontier of radiology. Because radiologists just used to sit in the dark reading films 
somewhere and the report would show up on your computer. But that's not the truth anymore. Now our technology is getting so sophisticated, not just because we have artificial intelligence that can interpret some images, but it's just getting so sophisticated in terms of the options of what we can offer. So it's the radiologist who can come to the, the pediatrician and say, hey, what is the question you're trying to answer? Let me offer you this brand new weird other test that could maybe get us to that answer. So that's going to be the next level of radiologist, the person who is um, on top of what's new and exciting and able to share that with the rest of the healthcare team and with other doctors and other patients. Yeah, well, curiosity seems like such an important part of radiology that it makes sense that that would um, kind of separate the good and really uh, excellent radiologists. But you were also saying how um, kind of behind almost every encounter with a patient, I mean, there's a radiologist reading scans or x-rays or something. Um, but how many patients would you say like you actually have like a face-to-face -face interaction with? Such a great question. I love that. So specifically in radiology, that varies a lot. And we have different subspecialties. So with each subspecialty in radiology, you have more or less patient interaction. So for the interventional radiologists, we're basically like doing minimally invasive surgeons, surgeries, they have 100% interaction. Every scan, every patient they see, they also interact with. Um, the breast radiologist, it's probably about 50-50. There's maybe about 50% of mammograms or breast MRIs that I read where I just produce a report and I don't see the patient. Sometimes I may talk to the physician about that patient, but I often won't see the patient. And there's another 50% where I get to see them myself. I give them the news. I perform their biopsies or their localizations. I comfort them. I celebrate with them. Um, the pediatric radiologist also see a large number of their patients. I would say they probably see about 30 to 40% of their patients in person. Um, and then you have the other spectrum where maybe the cardiothoracic radiologists don't see their patients as much, the neuroradiologists maybe 10 to 20%. You know, it varies quite a bit, but you're exactly right. This is the key. I love people. So that was a big part. I loved radiology. I loved how cerebral it was, but I also wanted the interpersonal interaction. And so that's why I specifically chose breast because I get to spend a lot of time with my patients. Um, but even past that, I'm also a doctor's doctor. So even if I'm only spending 50% um, of my time talking to patients. I'm spending another like 30% of my time talking to surgeons and oncologists and radiation oncologists and, you know, so I'm actually interacting with people quite a lot in my role. Um, and that was something that I, I really enjoyed. I work with a pathologist all the time, you know? Um, so that's something you can select. Again, you find your niche and then within your niche, you kind of find the little build out that works for all the parts of your personality and breast imaging works for me. We know that you have a family and we're wondering how you kind of manage that um, kind of family life and work balance. Um, well, I'm currently hiding in my closet so that my children won't find me and I can complete this podcast. <laughs> I think um, if you are going to have a family, the partner that you choose, okay, the spouse you choose is the single most important decision that you can make in your life. It's actually maybe even more important that when that than what specialty you choose. Choosing somebody who 
values your contributions as a professional, not just your contributions as their partner or as their co-parent, um, that's wonderful because that person will create room for you to be able to do all the things you want to do. They'll say, you go to that conference, I'll make it work. You go study, I'll get the kids. You go, you know, um, making that decision it sounds cliche, it sounds trite, but it is probably the single most important decision you make in your life. Not to put pressure on it, I'm not trying to scare you, um, but it's just to really keep that in mind. Also evaluate them on how supportive they are of your career, not just of you as a person who's cuddly and fun, but of your career um, and how powerful they think you are, how much impact they think you can have on the world. Because the person who thinks that um, is really going to, to really do a lot um, to make sure that you have that impact. Um, I will say that my, my husband and I, we have three kids, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. Um, and we see it as a season. We see it as a lot of little seasons. There are some seasons where the kids needed me at home more, they were priority number one and I didn't do as much research maybe and I didn't do as much teaching. And then in six months, they would be sleeping through the night and I would go, man, I miss teaching. And then I would give a lot of lectures, you know? So you have the opportunity to think of it as seasons. And so balance for me is not doing everything in the same day. It's sort of averaging it out over maybe like six months, okay? So it's not like every day I have to be the one to get my kids up, shower them, feed them, be perfect at work, give them dinner, put them to bed, you know, write a research paper. I don't have to average it out for that day. But over six months, if I think, okay, I spent the last two weeks just working on this research paper, not doing bedtime, then I think, okay, the next four weeks, I'm definitely the one doing bedtime, or we're going to have a really fun day out at the music festival on Saturday, you know? So give yourself room to, to, to average it out. <laughs> it doesn't have to be perfect. Kids are resilient. Um, I will also say that, also remember that children are very, very smart. And for me, I had two physician parents, right? Who were gone a lot. But I also was extremely proud of them. I was proud of them because when we went out in the community, people just were so grateful to them. And so I knew that what they did was important. So I did not resent what they did. And so that's how I communicate with my children about my job and my husband's job. I don't talk about it with guilt or shame. Um, I talk about it with a sense of purpose. Mommy gets to go help people every day. That's a privilege I get to do. Um, and when you give me that hug, it makes me feel bold enough and brave enough to go and help people. So you're helping me help people. So they don't resent my work. Um, they know that there's gonna be some busy seasons and they know that it's a team effort. We're all in it together. And so it works out. <laughs> And we're going to go ahead and wrap up this interview interview by asking, what is the day in the life of a radiologist like? And can you walk us through a normal day in your profession? Sure. Um, for me, from the time I get into work, most days I get into work around eight in the morning. And then I have a combination of performing minimally invasive procedures. I'll do biopsies to see if somebody has cancer. 
Um, I'll do some biopsies. I'll read some mammograms and MRIs. Typically around noon, I will take a meeting or two. Sometimes I, because I participate in international education, often that will be my chance to meet with people um, via Zoom, maybe in Singapore or in Zambia, give a lecture or just catch up on a project. Um, and then I'll continue work until usually about four or five o'clock. Um, Part of my work, even though I don't do it on a daily basis, is doing research. So sometimes I might incorporate some of my research into that day. Um, but typically, my work day ends around five o'clock. It's rare that I have to take call as a radiologist. Um, and so most of the time, my day ends at five, at which point I can go home, I can spend time with the kids, with the family, um, do some prep work for, for the next day, um, prepare some lectures that I may need to give to um, medical students or residents or fellows at other times, um, and, and you know catch up with the people that I mentor and make sure that they're doing okay. So life generally, I think, is pretty balanced in radiology. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Amafoye. Uh, for sharing your story with us and some of your great advice. Uh, it was so interesting to hear about your emphasis on lifelong learning and interpersonal uh, communicability. Uh, and we really appreciate your insight on balance and pursuing your interests. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. It's been an honor talking to you ladies. I'm so proud of you and you all let me know anything I can do for you in the future. I can't wait to see all of the places you will go. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It means a lot. Awesome. Stay in touch, okay? Of course, Take yeah. care. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. If you haven't already listened to the last episode with pediatric cardiologist Dr. Ng Bui, set aside some time to check that out. If you look forward to hearing our next podcast, click the subscribe button. We'd also like to give a shout out to Kat Cortez for designing our cover art. If you like the art, check out her work by following at Kat Productions Animations on Instagram. And be sure to follow our Instagram at Stories Behind the Scrubs and check out some of our other episodes.